Amen. I hope we never get used to things like that. Isn't that an incredible story? That's the story of the Motzinger family. And what they're doing is they're doing what we call here saying a gospel goodbye. I say goodbye because of the good news. And I move my life for the sake of mission. And I just don't ever want us to get used to the fact that by the grace of God, we are the type of church that plants churches and then we end up sending our best. I mean, the Motzingers are our best. That's what happens, right? Sending stings not stinks, stings, okay? Sending stings because the people who always go and are like, I wanna to go to the mission field. I wanna to go to the church. Well, guess who they are? They're always your best people, right? There's other people It's like, well, you're consumeristic and you're complaining and you're critical. Have you ever considered a church plant? <laughs> we wouldn't do that to anyone, no. We wouldn't do that to our church planters. But, but it's always your best people who leave. And that's why we love people deeply. It's important. We love people deeply, but we always hold them loosely. And I love what Jeremy said at the very end there. He said, you got three options, right? You can lose out, right? And I love it because if you read those options, there is no safe option. You can lose out, you can leverage where you are, or you can leave and be a part of God's mission. Now, what's exciting is you just heard a story of people who are leaving. And that's, that's a part of our vision that, that some of you, right? We've always said our sending capacity is gonna be more important than our seating capacity. So some of you, over time, you're going to leave and we're gonna rejoice. We're gonna pray for you. We're gonna shoot videos about you. and We're gonna send you. But then many of us are going to stay. And, and the question that we've been asking as a church is, okay, well, what does it mean for us on the other side of COVID or, or at the very kind of, as we're getting toward the end of COVID, what does it mean for us to lean in and leverage because part of it is, yes, we want to increase our sending capacity, so we're doing that. And we want to increase our serving capacity, so we're launching like 10 more groups. And if you've been to a weekender and you're not in a group, you need to come to Group Connect after the second service today. Okay, so we're, we're increasing our sending capacity and our serving capacity. We're increasing our shepherding capacity. So if you come uh, on Monday night, if you're a member on Monday, April 26th, we're going to be talking about four new elders and pastors. But what we're also increasing, along with our sending and our serving and our shepherding, is our seating capacity. I mean, look around here. It's very, very full. There's people in the lobby. There's also people, uh, it, this is every service, and then at night, also the VHQ venue. And so we know, we're like, hey, look, we're testing the limits of this facility. And so we've been praying, and we've been planning, and we've been pursuing, God, what do you have for us next? And it's interesting, because we felt like for a long time, we were in Ruth chapter one. Remember Ruth chapter one? Painful providence. Lots of things not going the way we thought. And then what we're gonna see today, Ruth chapter two, pleasant providence. We meet the right people in the right places. Well, that's exactly what happened to us. We met the right, and I can't tell the whole story right now, but I'm gonna tell it at the members' night, okay? So those of you members need to come April 26th, but here's what happened. We, through the right relationships and through the grace of God, we have found a piece of property that is going to be our forever home and hub as a church. Not only that, yes. Well, just wait. It's like, no, when I could not, I, I haven't even told y'all anything yet. Get ready. It is eight and a half acres in downtown. And we have it under contract. It's okay to clap. I mean, that's exciting. Okay, eight and a half acres. We're gonna build our forever home and hub there, right? Because we're like a family that's had lots of kids that needs a bigger home. That's what we are. And we are incredibly excited because we think it's from here that we're gonna be able to do ministry for the decades to come. We think it is the absolute best way to leverage what we have. And here's why this is important. If you are a member of our church, you've been through Weekender and you are a member of our church, we want you to come Monday, April 26th. This is going to be, I'm serious, this will be the most important members meeting in the history of our church so far. We want everyone there. We're gonna, the VHQ venue is gonna be mass required. The lobby seating area will be mass required, okay? And here it'll be like it is right now. 
And, and that's because we, we're like, hey, do you need to get, we have childcare for five and under. Do you need to, you know, do you need to get a babysitter? Do you need to move your plans? Does one spouse can't come, but another can. Everybody needs to be here. We want this to be standing room only as we tell the whole story of how God is, is leading us. See, for us, it's not either or. It's both and. It's yes, 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 yes. And we are incredibly excited about the door that God has opened up for us to have a long-term ministry when the culture is as confused and corrupt and crazy as ever. God is giving us a door and a piece of property. So we're gonna have to vote the members. We don't vote on a lot of things. We're going to be voting on April 26th to purchase this property and to move forward and to build it. Much more information to come, much more exciting days to come. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you that that's what Christianity is about. It's about both and. It's about deep and wide. It's about discipleship and evangelism. It's about local, national, and global. It's about people meeting Jesus and being made into his disciples. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you opened up eight and a half acres in downtown for us to have a forever home, to be a beacon and a bastion of gospel preaching truth. Lord, we thank you. We are humbled, Lord. We know that actually without COVID, this would not have happened. That providentially in all of the pain, we're seeing what you're doing, Lord, now. Lord, we pray this would be a night that we would never forget as together we celebrate the story of God's grace in our lives, in our church. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, type two, turn to Ruth chapter two. If you're new with us, basically we're looking at the Cinderella story of the Old Testament, okay? It's a great little love story, okay? And um, what's interesting is last week was all about painful providence, right? What what is providence? Okay, well, it means pro means before, that's what pro means, and uh, vidier, or video, is to see. So what does providence mean? To see beforehand. That's what the word providence means. And so what we saw in chapter one is, is where some of your lives are, right? You are in a painful providence. God cares, God's in control, God's careful, God's concerned, but life is hard for you. You're going through a divorce. Your kid has a disability. You lost your job, okay? You're struggling with anxiety and depression. I, I don't know what it is, but many of you emailed me. And you said, I I know, I get it. I'm going through this season in my life where I know somebody who's going through this season. Well, what we see is is what the theologians, and it's helpful, right? We have 2,000 years of church history. Theologians have called providence a pillow. It's an interesting thought, the pillow of providence. That providence is actually something that we should rest our head on at night and say, God is in control. I don't understand all that's happening. I don't understand how my, you know, my uh, responsibility and God's sovereignty works together. But the pillow of providence is at the end. I don't know why I'm here, right? I didn't choose this. I wouldn't choose this. I didn't choose this. But this is where I am. And I'm going to lay my head on the pillow of providence. And what we see in the story of Ruth, which is exciting, is when God seems farthest, he's building a foundation. That's what God's doing. He seems farthest away, but what he's actually doing is building a foundation. So if you'll turn with me to chapter two, verse one, what we're going to see is moving from painful providence to pleasant providence. The rest of the book is mostly pleasant providences, right? And, and sometimes you'll have lots of painful providences. Lots of times you'll have more plain providences, like day after day seems the same. And then every once in a while, there's pleasant providences. And what we're seeing here is this is the classic boy meets girl story. This is gonna be Boaz meeting Ruth. And we're gonna watch this story unfold over the next three weeks, over the next three chapters. So type two, turn to Ruth chapter one, or sorry, Ruth chapter two, verse one. Here's what it says. Now Naomi, remember she said, call me bitter, but they, they, the writer still calls her Naomi, which means sweet. 
And she's, she's had to deal with a lot of painful providence. She's had to deal with three funerals and a famine and a husband who was fearful and fleeing and all of the repercussions of that. It says this, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. And then if you underline, and I say this often because I think you should, I knew a guy, he was a grandfather and he's a grandfather and he reads the Bible through every year and he writes all in his Bible, all of his notes, all of his thoughts. And then every year he gives one of his Bibles to one of his grandkids. So don't be afraid to write in your Bible and say, this is what God's teaching me right now. So you may want to underline worthy man, because we're going to spend a lot of time. We're going to spend a lot of time in verse one. Why? Because we have no idea what it means to be a worthy man. Where would you go today to find what it means to be a worthy man? Would you look at celebrities? Would you look at culture? Would you look at sports heroes? Probably not for the most part. So here's what it says. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. Of the clan of Elimelech, that means the larger extended family. That's how we would say it. A clan is a larger, more extended family. So this is the first sign of hope in the book. Whose name was, and here it is, Boaz. Isn't that a great name, right? Boaz means in him is strength. That's what it means. And what's really neat is later Solomon, because Solomon knows his Bible, later when Solomon is building the temple, and he has to name different parts of the temple. He names one of the pillars in the temple, Boaz. Because what does Boaz do? He's that which others can trust and depend on. He's that which is sturdy and holds others up. And so we're gonna take a lot of time today talking about what it means to be a worthy man. Part of actually what we're doing, because this is what the book of Ruth does, is we're going to spend this week mostly on the men. Of course, the women too, because Ruth, Ruth shows up and is in this. And then next week, guess what? In chapter three, Ruth is called, it's not a coincidence, Ruth is called a worthy woman. So this is gonna be fun. We are going to spend this week particularly talking to the men and about what it means to be a worthy man, man or men. And then next week, we're gonna talk about to the women and what does it mean to be a worthy woman? And this is important because, right, we are confused as a culture. It would, what would you say if your daughter walked up to you and said, mom, dad, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? Or your son walks up to you and says, guys, I, I'm, I, what does it mean? What does it mean for me to be a man and not a woman? And we can't just say plumbing and hair distribution and tone of voice. <laughs> Although those are good answers, but that, it's more than that, not less than that. You know, it's like, where would we go? It's like, well, listen, the church may be the last place on earth to say, listen, we believe that men and women are equal in value, dignity, significance, and worth, but we are different in roles and responsibilities. That men and women are more the same than different. That's important. Men and women are more the same than different, but they are different. Now, we live in a culture that does not, that, that beats up on the men a lot. And, we, and we, we try to always say here, we want to build you up, not beat you up, right? But when, when it's hard to know what a worthy man is, and by the way, we're told to look at Boaz men and women, but women look at him as somebody who would be worth following, worth marrying, worth being a dad and a husband in your life. We're told to the men, he's worthy of example. He's worthy of imitation. He's worthy to follow as a model. And this is important because, again, we live in a society where the American Psychological Association, I told you this, in either 2018 or 2019, came out and called masculinity an illness. They called it a sickness. Well, it's like, you know, listen, men have, just as a fact, a thousand percent more testosterone in their bodies than women at any given time. Guess what testosterone makes you do? It makes you protect things. It makes you aggressive. It makes you assertive. It makes you competitive. 
That's what it does. And what you do, what you do with masculinity and manhood is you don't tell people, because then, what do you do with men when they feel that? You shouldn't feel that. It's like, well, I don't know what to do then, because I feel that all the time. It's like, well, actually what you need to do is you need to learn to integrate that into your life and direct it in the right way. Right, so we have this idea in our culture, we're talking a lot about toxic masculinity. Then we have these weird forms of masculinity. Have you heard of the dude? Okay, the dude, I, I read about this. They're, they're actually coming out with what's called dude food, which is like greasy food that you can drink with beer and watch sports with, okay? It's dude food. And the reason is dude is, this is important to understand, dude is masculinity minus responsibility. That's what the dude is. So the dude likes women. He just doesn't wanna get married. The dude likes to watch porn because he likes to have sex or likes to think about sex but doesn't want commitment. He likes video games because he loves adrenaline but doesn't want real life risk. And so the dude, he's got lots of friends, he's got lots of hobbies. But he has, you know, he, he, the, the, here's a classic example that, that was very made famous through, and this is what happens, things get famous through sitcoms. Guess who the ultimate dude is? Everybody loves Raymond. Here's the problem, everybody loves Raymond, nobody respects Raymond. Raymond's a goofy dude. Raymond doesn't know what's going on. Raymond needs to follow everybody else. And so we have this, and then, then there's, and you need to know this, and then, then there's lots of men, and the reason that we talk about these things, and we'll talk all next week about the women. Don't worry, women, we're coming after you next week, okay? <laughs> it's funny, we got this church. One time, I preached to the men, this was way back in Genesis, and the next, and the next week, Lay said, you better, you better preach to us too. You better, you better call us out too. I said, where am I? Okay. Um, <laughs> So anyway, so, um, so but there's, there's, there's books being written right now, like high-level books called Men on Strike, basically about how men are giving up on life. There's lots of reasons for that. They're not getting married. They're not having kids. They're not interacting with the opposite sex. They don't want to get married because of all the legal ramifications. They're afraid of divorce. They know what happens to men in divorce court, usually no matter what. And so they, there's a whole thing called MGTO, M-G-T-O-W, Men going their own way. It's a large group that's growing online. And so what we want to do is we want to be the, this may feel weird to say this, but here's what we want to say. We're going to say it in a good way next week about women as well. We love men. We think, we think the world needs more men. We want to speak, it's like, what would we do without men? Do you know that 99.9, so that's basically everybody, 99.9% uh, of bricks are made by men. So if you see a brick building, say, I thank God for men. <laughs> right? Because no woman wants to do that job, and we understand. Most men don't want to do that job. Men historically have, to, now we'll get to women. Don't worry. Some of you are like, you're not saying enough about women. I'll say it next week. Listen, uh, men have fought almost all the wars. Men are the ones who make sure that everything that breaks gets fixed. And they're so ungrateful. Our society is so ungrateful particularly for blue-collar men who do all these hard jobs all the time with very little thankfulness. So what we're gonna see today is Boaz. Boaz is a successful business guy who works with a bunch of blue-collar guys. That's what he is. He's white-collar, but he works with blue-collar. And we're going to see his interaction with Ruth. All right, turn to verse two. That was all verse one. We'll move quicker, more quickly. All right, <laughs> we will. We have to, we have to. Okay, all right. And Ruth the Moabite, okay, so here's Ruth again. She said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight shall I find favor. Now, we don't know, is she looking for a guy or is she just trusting in the Lord? In whose sight I shall find favor. We, 
commentaries, theologians don't know, is she talking about God or she's hoping she's gonna meet some guy? Maybe both. And she says this, and she said to her, go my daughter. Now this is awesome because this, what this means is that Ruth somehow knows her Bible. We don't know if Naomi taught her, but there was this idea that God set up something for the poor people. Now, now remember, Naomi and Ruth are poor. They are homeless. They are widowed. They are hungry. They need food. They need family. They don't have it. And so, but, but no, we don't know how exactly, but maybe Naomi taught her. Uh, maybe they learned this in synagogue. But Ruth finds out there's this rule that you can go and glean in another person's field if you don't have your own food. Now, here's what this means. This was something God put together in the Old Testament because God loves poor people. You have to know this. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is for the spiritually poor and the financially poor, the poor of the soul and the poor of the purse. And God said, okay, I'm gonna set up this system. It's not a welfare state. What this is instead, it's actually, it's genius. And of course it is because God thought it up. Basically, it's like, hey, listen, the margins, this is the principle, the margins are for the marginalized. And so what he would say to people is, and there's verses, you can read this. He would say to guys, hey, listen, if you own an olive tree, shake it one time when you get the olives off. Shake it one time, get the olives, and what, what, now you're not gonna get every olive. But what's gonna happen is poor people who don't have any olives and can't afford to buy olives, they can come, and the, the olives that are hard to get, that are way up in the tree, that you'll have to shake real hard, you'll have to climb up to get, they can go get those. Now, why is this important? It's because what you do is, you don't give people a hand out, you give them a hand up. And you say, okay, well, here's what I wanna do. Because this is one of the reasons, Tim Keller says this, one of the reasons that ministry to the poor and to the homeless doesn't work is there's a sense of superiority that often happens with it. You know, you're in need and I'm not. You've done something wrong and I haven't. I have more, you have less, let me help you. Let me just give it to you. Then I actually feel good about myself. What, what the Bible teaches is instead, we're going to give the dignity to the homeless and to the poor. We're gonna actually have them work for it. So they're gonna have their own dignity back. This is why you'll find this. If you, get, if you start to know good, godly nonprofits, they have these kind of things in place. Okay, we're gonna bring the, the, the ladies in. And you know, they, were, they were homeless or they were in prostitution or they were in something. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna teach them how to bake. And we're gonna give them, you know, we're gonna pay them. But what they're gonna do is they're gonna work for us for five hours and we're gonna teach them these skills. This is very, very common. These men, okay, we're gonna bring these men in. They're out of prison. They're, they don't have much. Okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna give them a skill set. And so this is what's happening. She says, okay, now this is another thing. We see that though she is single and though she knows the word of God, it doesn't make her idle, right? She's, though she believes in providence, she's being very productive. So she heads to the field not knowing what's gonna happen. And then look in verse three. It says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened it's kind of the, it's the writer's way to go, oops, yeah, yeah, sure, this is an accident. And she happened. It was just a coincidence. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, it's like another way to say, oh, wow, you know, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So you see, there's no accidents, there's just appointments. That everything in your life, I mean, this is, this is what's really deep to think about, that everything in your life is father-filtered. Like many, many people feel like I'm here, I'm in Winston-Salem by accident. I didn't get into the med school I wanted to. I didn't get the job. I wanted to live in Charlotte, I'm in Winston-Salem instead. I wanted to be in Raleigh, I'm in Winston-Salem instead. It may have been an accident to you, it's an appointment by God. And here's what it says next. Look at this, verse four again. And Boaz, and behold, Boaz came from 
Bethlehem. And what we find out is that the part of the field belonging to Boaz is where she, where she lands. So a couple things that we're going to see, I'm going to just unpack Boaz, because he's, he's clearly, as we're going to see him walk onto the pages of Scripture, he's clearly a model. So the first thing we see about Boaz, and this is unbelievable, and ladies, you may want to write this down, and you may want to tell the single ladies about this. Number one, he has a job. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> On your list needs to be Jesus and then a job, okay? In that order, but he has, he has a job. He's, and this is actually good, and men need to know this. Men need to work. I didn't say men need to be the breadwinners. I didn't say men need to make a ton of money, but men need to work. I've seen this for a long time. Men who do not work are dangerous because they get bored. You do not want to see a bored man. He finds himself in a bunch of trouble. I've met men who don't work. They're usually depressed because we're beasts of burden. We have to do something. The first thing we see, scripture or work is pre-fall. It's not optional. I mean, you, you know, you, you could choose what your work is, but you can't choose, are you going to work? It's not optional. You should see the studies of what happened to people who retire early and do nothing. It's not good. So the first thing we see is he is a man who has a job. Okay, next look what he does. Verse, uh, chapter four, verse B, or, or four, yeah, four B. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now, how many of you go, my boss doesn't say that to me? <laughs> my boss uses the Lord's name, but differently than that, okay? <laughs> this guy is, Boaz is the kind of guy that, and by the way, this would be like a construction site, okay? You're not going to normally hear this language at a construction site. But here's what you have, and this is what's so awesome about this. Boaz, and, and, and people who, who commentators notice this, Boaz is using the language that's found in Numbers chapter six. I think it's verse 24. It's the language that's given to priests. And so th this is anybody who knows their Bible and has been reading you know, Genesis and Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and all that in Numbers and anybody who's been reading that and then they read this, they would realize, oh my goodness, Boaz is acting like a priest. He's not, right? He's a wealthy, successful business leader. And this is important to know, man. You can be a business leader and a spiritual leader at the same time. And these men deeply respect him. And you have to understand that, that some of you, you're gonna be out there and it's gonna be your employees or it's gonna be your classmates or it's gonna be your coworkers and you're going to be the only godly person that they know. And so what he does is he walks with God and he talks to God and he talks about God. He's, he's an overt Christian, not a covert Christian, right? Some of you are covert Christians. You know you're a Christian. Jesus knows you're a Christian. Jesus knows you're a Christian. I mean, that's, that's about it. Nobody else, you're, you're, an over, you're a covert Christian, okay? Others of you are overt, right? We wanna be overt without being weird, right? We, but we wanna, we wanna, how do we be you know, explicitly Christian and highly relational? Which leads to another thing. So, so a couple things to notice, you know, ladies to notice about what to look for man, in a man, men to look for to what to be. So one, he has a job, well, that's good. Number two, he's godly and public about his faith. Number three, he seems to have good, healthy relationships with other men. Do you know the average guy over 30 years old has less than one close friend? I mean, go think about that for a while or think about this. Ask this question. Does my dad or did my dad have any close friends? I'm not saying drinking buddies. I'm not saying golfing buddies. I'm not saying coworkers. Did my dad or does my dad or do I have any close friends? Many people say the greatest miracle that Jesus ever did was be in his 30s and have 12 close friends. 
the unnoted miracle of Jesus Christ, to be in your 30s and to have 12 close friends. So here he is. He's an overt Christian. And then verse five, then Boaz said to this young woman who was in charge of the reapers, or sorry, then Boaz said to his young man, like his foreman, his right-hand man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So he notices Ruth. Now, it probably wasn't, maybe to some extent, we don't know exactly, it probably wasn't her looks, right? She's working very hard. She's probably sweating. Her, probably hair's in a ponytail, not, no makeup on, you know, dirt under her nails. But he, he notices something about her. But she doesn't have a wedding ring on, whatever. And, he, and he's like, well, who is that? And then we get this um, answer, verse six. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now listen, this is interesting. You know, a good rule for men is to not, um, not miss the women that God is placing and putting in front of you, even if it's not who you expected. Right? And all the women say, all the women said, amen. <laughs> right? Because, well, it's interesting. It's like, well, think about it. Okay, so he's wealthy. I mean, you want to talk about opposites of track. He's wealthy and she is poor. He's a strong Jew and she is a Moabite. She's not a virgin. She's been married before. Because she's from Moabite, she was probably very sexually uh, promiscuous. So she, she lives with her mother-in-law. <laughs> this was not on Boaz's prayer request. Could she live with a woman named Bitter? Uh, no, okay. Um, but, but it just shows us that sometimes we think we have all this list of what he'll look like or what she'll look like. And it's like, well, who has God put, placed, and positioned in front of you? Don't overlook the single moms. Don't overlook the widows. Who has God placed in front of you? Look at verse seven. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. The first thing we hear about uh, Ruth is her character. Um, and we'll see, there, there are other things in next chapter, we'll get to next week, you know, when she goes and meets him again, you know, Naomi basically says, hey, take a shower and put some makeup on and all that. Um, but but what, what, what he first notices is her character. Now, this is interesting, because if you read, by the way, if you read Proverbs 31, everyone talks about being a Proverbs 31 woman. A lot of it's just about character, and a lot of it's about a hard work ethic, which is the first thing that we hear about Ruth. And then here's what it says next, verse eight. <clears throat> then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. And why does he call her that? Because he has, he has the father's heart. He cares for people. He sees her. He says, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So the first thing he says is he basically says, hey, I want you to spend time with other women. Which, by the way, part of what this is all going to be in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 is, and, and when does it officially begin and end? We don't know. Um, but it's, it's about how they began their relationship. And the first thing we see as Boaz interacts and he talks to her face-to-face, -face, he doesn't just text her, Facebook message her, slide into her DMs, as I've heard, as I heard the young people call it. Um, um, you know, instead of, instead of doing those things, he talks to her face-to-face. -face, and the first thing he says is, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure you're hanging out with other young ladies. This is really important because what you'll notice, and I see this all the time. And when I was in college ministry, I saw this all the time. What, what tends to happen in a relationship is that what a bad man will want to do is he will want to take a woman away from her friendships, away from her accountability, away from her family, away from her relationships. Now, women can do the exact same thing. And oftentimes, you don't even realize this till it's like you're getting ready to get married. And you're like, I haven't talked to any of the ladies who I thought would be my bridesmaids in six months. 
because I've completely dated in isolation and not dated in community, which is not a great way to get to know my future spouse. And love is blind. We said that for a reason. And we can't know ourselves by ourselves, and we need community around us. So he says, hey, listen, I actually want you to stay with us. You need godly women in your life. And they're here, and I want you to spend time with godly women. So that's the first thing he does. Next, if you look at verse 9, he says this. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Now, this is the first anti-sexual harassment policy ever. It's right here in scripture. He's protecting her. Now, this is amazing because what he's doing is he's protecting her from other men. And then we'll see in chapter three, he protects her from himself. This is what you actually do when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to being impure, that part of what you do, what, what he's doing first, he's like, hey, I'm gonna protect you from other men so that they won't take advantage of you because you don't have money and you're, you're gonna be by yourself and you're gonna be in the field all day. Um, and so I'm gonna protect you. And then, and then what, what a good godly man does is he protects his future spouse from himself while they're dating by setting barriers and boundaries physically, right? And it can't be we're gonna do everything but have sex because we know how that handle, ends up. And actually what happens, and, and this, is, this might be another reason to, to, you know, for the men to consider boundaries and barriers, if you don't have them, she won't respect you. And then you'll be the kind of person trying to say, oh, I need to lead us. It's like, well, you're not leaving lead yourself. You don't even listen to what scripture says. And so you're gonna lose, this happens all the time. Guys lose their moral authority to lead in dating because they can't keep their hands to themselves. And so what, what, what she's saying or what he's saying is, I'm going to protect you first from other people then ultimately from himself. And then he says this, verse nine, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, this is, this is gonna be a new concept in 2021. What he's practicing here is chivalry, right? And it's interesting, chivalry is, is dead in our culture, but it shouldn't be. They, they did a survey recently just of the women on Match.com, on Match.com, and they said, okay, do you expect on the first date for the guy to pay? 91% of the women still said Yes. So though we may say chivalry is dead, it still is an expectation. Here's what chivalry means. And this probably is completely, you know, politically incorrect and completely offensive, but here we go. Um, <laughs> is, is that we treat women differently. And by that, we mean better. You actually don't want to be treated the way a guy treats a guy. I don't really like being treated the way a guy treats a guy. <laughs> And so Shivery says, hey, listen, we're equal in value, significance, dignity, and worth, but everybody who saw the movie Titanic knew it was right when they said women and children first. That's what it means, that, we, that women, we treat women differently. We treat them better. They are like a fine vase. Men are like an old thermos, okay? <laughs> and we, we, we treat them differently, okay? One, one we can handle with more care. Verse 10 says this, then she fell on her face, so she's humble and she's grateful, Bowing to the ground, and she said, why have I found favor, which is the Old Testament word for grace? Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She's so grateful to God and grateful to Boaz. But she says, basically, and this is a good thing, this is you know, a good thing for women to know, she basically asked the guy, why are you doing what you're doing? Is that okay for a lady to ask a guy to have the right expectations? Can you help me understand why you keep texting me? Can you help me understand why you're talking to me after church every time? Can you help me understand, right? That's an okay question to ask. Can you help me understand your intentions? Are, are we official? I mean, right, That's, the, the man is to lead, but the girl is to respond and to react and to humbly and gratefully, but to ask questions. So she basically asks questions, which is fair. Hey, Boaz, what's your expectations? Do you have certain expectations? You're being very nice to me. 
you're treating me, you're treating me differently. You're, it looks like you're even treating me differently than you treat all the other women. What's up with this? And then Boaz responds in verse 12. And again, he, or sorry, verse 11. Then, but Boaz answered her. And here's what he says. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So I guess he finds out who she is. Then he, then he gets some more information. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So I guess he did some research and he gets to know her and gets to know her story, gets to know her spiritual journey, gets to know her family. Now, ladies, do you want a man who knows you? Yes, you do. So he, he goes out of his way to learn who she is. And then, again, we can't tell exactly, is he, does he say this to her or pray this over her? But he's a very spiritual man and here's what he says. Either he says it to her or prays it over her. He says this, the Lord repay you, verse 12, for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. So he's not talking about himself a lot. He's a very humble man. He's talking about God. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he takes a moment. And he basically says, look, I see what God's doing in your life. And sometimes you need someone like this in your life. You need a friend. You need a spouse. You need a brother. You need a community group leader, you, you need a pastor, you need, you need somebody in your life to basically, a mom and dad, to basically say, look, I, I don't know that you can see it right now, but I actually see a little bit, I think, what God might be doing in your life. And I just want to take a moment, I want to pray for you, because I know you've been through a lot, and I want to encourage you. And that encourage means to put courage in you. That's what courage is. That's what encourage means. I want to take a moment, I want to identify what God is doing in your life, and I want to encourage that. A friend of mine, um, who's a successful business leader, he said, what I like to do is I like to catch my employees doing the right thing and encourage them. It's very easy to catch people doing the wrong thing. It's very easy to call people out for doing the wrong thing. But to catch them doing the right thing and encourage them, that's what he's doing. Verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly. This is another great lesson for us to learn, men, that though he was tough, he also could be tender. That though he was a successful businessman and had to run all of these different, you know, organization and he had to lead these men and probably be pretty direct with them, at the end of the day, he could sit down and he could be kind and he could comfort a young lady. Here's what he says. You comforted me and you've spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Look, he takes the next step. He continues to initiate and invite. Initiate and invite. Initiate and invite. Verse 14. And at mealtime... Boaz said to her, so he, he continues to initiate and invite, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she's getting more than what she thought. She just wanted to be able to, you know, get some barley and take it home. Now she's getting a full meal with wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. What we see here with Boaz is he's humble and he's hospitable. He's humble in that it says, and this would be unique if you understand the culture, he ate with his men, even though he was the, uh, much more wealthy, much more successful, and owned the business, he takes the time to sit with his blue-collar men and be like one of them. Part of it is he's a humble guy because it's not about him. He's successful, but he's humble. He sees, hey, you know, this is the Lord's field. This is what the Lord's done. The way he talks, right? The way he talks to the men, the Lord bless you. It's not, I'm not blessing you ultimately. It's the Lord bless you. And then when he comes to... Uh, uh, Ruth, it's not, hey, I'm going to come in and I'm going to change your life and I'm going to save the day. Instead, it's, man, I'm seeing what the Lord's doing in your life. And, and what's interesting is that Boaz begins to become the blessing he prayed for her for. 
This is a common theme in scripture that God will have us pray for things that we then get a heart for that we end up answering our own prayers. We end up becoming, the, it's like when, when Jesus tells the disciples, I think it's in Luke 9 or Matthew 9 or one of those, he basically says, hey, I want you to pray for, to send out laborers into the harvest. And he teaches them to pray. And then afterwards, he sends them out into the harvest and they become the answers to their own prayers. So here he is, he's got the men, they're at the table, they're eating. They eat together, verse 15. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean among the sheaves. Now, without getting into too much detail, here's what this means. He's going beyond what the law required. He's going beyond what the law commanded. He is being more gracious and generous than what scripture even requires. He's going the extra mile for her. Let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull some out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Verse 18, and, so, and, and she took it up, or sorry, verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. Now an ephah, ephah, is about 30 pounds, about five gallons of barley. So what, what this would have been, they estimate equal to about two weeks worth of wages. So what Boaz does to her is he gives her so much more than she would naturally earn or deserve. Do you see how this is all gonna be a picture of how God relates to us? He gives her so much more than she deserves. This also tells us that, that Ruth must've been doing CrossFit. I mean, she, she can, she can, she's able to take these 30 pounds and she's able to walk it all the way back to her mother-in-law. Look at verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law, now we haven't heard about Naomi since the very beginning, but here she is. Her mother-in-law saw that what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. One of the greatest pictures that we get of Boaz is that he's not just rich. I mean, that's not a great goal for your life. I mean, you know, I want to be rich. How about the goal, I want to be generous? Because actually what we see in the life of Boaz is, yes, he's wealthy, but there's different types of wealthy people, right? There's wealthy people who are wealthy because they're stingy and selfish. And then there are wealthy people that the Bible talks about who they, they, they tend to give and keep having. They have an abundance mindset. What we see with, with Boaz is he's generous with his words, He's speaking to people. He's generous with his time. He's taking time to talk to a young woman. He's generous with his field. He's generous with his food. The picture of hospi the reason hospitality is such a Christian virtue is it's, it's a multidimensional view of generosity. Because when you invite someone over for hospitality, you go, I will share with you my family, which means a lot to me. I will share with you food. I will share with you my time. I will share with you my most intimate and private space, my home. And I will share all of that with you. And, that, and that's, what, that's, a, that's a picture of generosity. And this is what Boaz does with his men regularly and now with Ruth. So she goes back, she tells her mother-in-law, and look, this is the first positive thing Naomi has said. Look at this, verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So, so far, Naomi has no idea who, who, who did this. Somebody, a generous man, but who was it? Verse 19, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, and this, you know, you got to imagine, scripture early on was mostly just read and people were not very familiar with scripture. So if you're reading it so far, it, this should come all as a shock and surprise. The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
And all of a sudden, Naomi's going to be, be like, oh, I know who that guy is, right? So what happens is a young lady goes back to talk to an older lady and says, uh, I need some wise counsel, right? This should be another thing that should happen in dating relationships, right? We need to date in community, and we need to date with the word of God and wise counsel, right? And who, who knows, you know, better than the person who's older, who's already been married, right? But part of what's hard about life is we have to make so many big decisions as a novice, Buying houses, having kids, getting married, starting businesses. It's like, well, maybe I should find somebody else who's done this, who's godly, who can help me. So it goes back to Naomi. Naomi says, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. And then this, this is really, I'm gonna unpack this some today and more in the, in the weeks to come. One of our redeemers. This is the first sign of hope for Naomi in the whole book. And a new sign of hope really for Ruth as well. Look at what happens in verse 21. And, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So basically she encourages her. You're making the right decision. I want to encourage you to keep going out. But then look at verse 23, the most like boring ending of a chapter ever. Ready? So she kept close to, uh, close to the young men of Boaz. Like, okay, well, what happened with Boaz? What happened? Do they, do they date more? What happens? Gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest. Okay. And she lived with her mother-in-law. That's the worst. <laughs> That's the worst ending ever to a book. It, it's because if you go back and you look at um, the verse where it says he's a close relative, he's one of our redeemers. Here's what's so interesting. And this is gonna point us so much to Christ because what, this is so profound. There was this idea in the Old Testament that if a man married a woman and that, and that, woman, and that man died, that that woman would marry one of the brothers that was living that wasn't married. And that was a way to take care of the family. What's interesting here is we don't know right now. Now, if you know the story, you know what's going to happen. But right now, here's what's interesting. Because he's a distant relative, he could redeem her. He could marry her and change her life. But he doesn't have to. And because she's a Moabite and not a Jew, he, but she believes, he could, but he doesn't have to. What a picture of Christ. Because when she looked at the scripture, she said, well, I read this and somebody could do something about this, but nobody has to do something about this. And then Jesus Christ comes in the world and says, not only could I do something about this, but I will. Do you understand that we look to Boaz, but more than that, we look through Boaz, right? We look at Boaz, but then we look above Boaz and we see a bigger, bigger and better Boaz. His name is Jesus Christ, right? He's not just the Lord of a harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. And we, if you haven't gotten it already, get it. We are Ruth. We are widowed. We need a husband we are without family and without food. We are without relationship and without resource. And we meet by the grace of God and the providence of God, Jesus Christ, the greater Boaz. What does Jesus do to us? He says, you can come in my field. More than that, he makes promises to us in the gospel to protect us and to provide for us. Now that would be good enough. But then on top of that, he says, and I would also like you to come to the table. I'd like you to have a meal with me, right? That's how the gospel, right, right before he goes to the cross, what's he doing? He's having a meal, right? Because he wants to have relationship with us. 
And not only that, he gives us so much more so that we can give to others. Do you get that picture of Boaz? Boaz goes and gives Ruth all of this extra barley. Why? It's missional. There's going to be a lot of other people who need this message. And so what does it mean to be a Boaz? The first thing it means is you, you can't be a Boaz until you realize that Christ is the greater Boaz, right? Because the beginning of the gospel is I need to start taking responsibility for my sin. That's it, right? You can't keep saying, well, it's my genetics. Well, I was born this way. Well, I was drunk. You start saying, well, no, no, no. I'm actually a sinner. I'm not a mistaker. This is what it means to be a man. It says, look, I, I have sinned. And a woman can do this too. I have sinned and it's time for me to stop making excuses and to start repenting and to give my life to Christ. What Jesus, the reason that Jesus Christ is the manliest man who ever manned, if we could say that, okay, is because he took responsibility, right? Manhood and masculinity and responsibility are synonymous. What, man, what manhood is, is I take glad responsibility for my life and those near me. Now, what, what Jesus does is he says, I'm actually gonna go one step farther. I'm gonna do what nobody else has to do. I'm gonna take responsibility for the wrong things other people have done. That's what the cross is Jesus Christ taking responsibility taking the sins of the world on himself, dying in our place and rising from the dead. And what this does for all of us, but particularly today, especially for the men, it calls us to be by the grace of God, men like Boaz. I was talking to a young lady last week and she couldn't be at our service. And maybe some of you weren't there, but those of you who were there will get this. She said, I wasn't at your service. She said, but I was watching online. And she said, when you ask the dads to stand, she said, I'm watching it online and I just start crying. And she said, you know why I cried? Because I thought about how much my dad means to me. And I thought about how my whole life is different and my mom's life is different and my sibling's life is different because of my dad. Men, how can our wives' lives, our daughters' lives, our family's lives be different? Because of what God has done through us, done in us and done through us. Let's pray. Lord, what a call today. Jesus, we thank you. You are the greater Boaz who've come into our lives, Lord, and we had nothing. Literally, Ruth had nothing to offer in and of herself. She wasn't looking for you, but you were looking for her. Lord, we weren't looking for you, but you were looking for us. Lord, thank you that you are the great initiator and the great inviter, Lord. You invite us to salvation. You also invite us to friendship. And then as we see at the end, you invite us to mission, Lord. Lord, I pray you would strengthen the men. Next week, we'll talk about the women, but strengthen the men in our church. That in part, what happens is good men lead to good marriages, which lead to good families, which lead to good churches, which lead to strong cities. That's part of our city vision, Lord. Would you raise up good and godly men? We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the greater Boaz. Amen.